This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Matzo. I'm Charlie Navarrete. Hi, Charlie. Please relax. Please relax and get yourself something good to eat and drink. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have a recipe of the week, and Charlie has a poem for us. Says you. And, well, I'm hoping. A, a, a limerick. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Um, in the second half, I'm going to talk a little bit about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. In our third half, we have a great story of resilience and living with chronic illness from Stephen. Um and how he came about having his diagnosis of um, IPF, or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So, Charlie, what's our uh, recipe? Well, among the Pennsylvania Dutch, Amish, and Mennonites, a raisin pie was usually served after a funeral, often having been brought by mourners as a gift to the family of the deceased, a a tradition imported from Germany. It's been said that this pie is deliberately made painfully sweet. It has two cups of raisins and a cup of sugar to allow mourners to forget. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about a sugar rush. Might as well just, you know, find a vein and insert it that way. To allow mourners to forget, if only for a moment, the pain of their grief. It is believed that this pie was often chosen because the staples for it were almost always in the pantry and the pie keeps well. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know that I could really all all that much get into raisin pie, but you know, maybe. And 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 so true about like painfully sweet. Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All all it needs is a Coca Cola chaser. So um, you you got all upper society on this week and decided that you were going to do a uh, I was going to say do a play do a poem for us. Oh no, I'm going to do the play. Act oh, one, act one of four acts. Scene <laughs> one. Okay, I, I, I'll hold off on that one. Yes, a poem. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So the poem is called. Casa Bianca, is that, I say that correct? Yes, Casa, Casa Bianca by Felicity Hamans. Uh, not even close. Uh, by Felicia Hammonds. Oh. It almost well, said, it almost you said say like Hammonds, you, I say Hamans, you know? Oh, I thought you said Hamas. So I thought, yeah, there's really no. no. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, why would you <laughs> even go there? Okay. So. Yeah, really. We don't got enough trouble. Yeah, exactly. Right here in River City. Mm-hmm. So Casa Bianca. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. The flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him o'er his head. Yet beautiful and bright he stood, as born to rule the storm a creature of heroic blood, a proud though childlike form. The flames rolled on, he could not go without his father's word. 
That father, faint to death below, his voice no longer heard. He called aloud, Say, father, say, if yet my task is done. He knew not that the chieftain lay unconscious of his son. Speak, father, once again he cried, if I may yet be gone. But the booming shouts replied, and the fast flames rolled on. Upon his brow he felt their breath, and in his waving hair, he looked from that lone post of death in yet brave despair, and shouted but once more aloud, My father, must I stay? While o'er him fast through sail and shroud the wreathing fires made way. They wrapped the ship in splendor while they caught the flag on high, and streamed above the gallant child like banners in the sky. There came a burst of thunder sound. The boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewed the sea. With mask and helm and pen and fair, that well had borne their part. But the noblest thing which perished there was that young, faithful heart. Yeah. You know, I'm listening I'm listening to you read that and I'm thinking my kids would have been out of there like a shot if I had told yes. them they could go or not. <laughs> yeah. Um and and you know it's 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 crazy. I mean I mean this poem's like um hang on a second, eighteen twenty yeah, this this poem was written in eighteen twenty six. It was it's almost two hundred years ago. Um yeah. and, and and it's based on an actual event. I mean, this actually happened. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time, you know, Casa Bianca, I mean, was also known as the boy on the burning deck. You know, oh, and, and, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, this this is real. Um, and, you know, basically it's just, you know, about a, a commitment. I mean, not leaving your post. And, you know, while there have been, you know, a lot of stories about people not leaving their post from you know, dating back to ancient Rome and Greece. Um, I, re- I remember a Star Trek film where Scotty's young nephew, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, out on his first voyage, stayed at his post and died at his post while other cadets, you know, there was this huge attack from some Romulan ship or something. But, you know, they all just were scared shitless and started to run wild. But, you know, the kid stayed at his post and, and died. So... Mm-hmm. You know, in um, in Hemmons' poem, I mean, she she writes about a twelve year old child, and you know, and some accounts had him as young as ten. Um, but but you know, she referred to him as a twelve year old, and while you know his loyalty to his father and duty is touching, and you know, what, what like what you mentioned, you know, your uh, you know your daughters and you know my son would be like, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm out of here, see ya. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is touching and in its way inspirational, but it is of its time. Um, yeah, but I'm sorry. There's, there's just, there's no honor in a needless death. And well, there. That's I think perhaps maybe one way to look at it. The other uh-huh. way to look at it is is our obligation mm-hmm. to our word. So if our word is, I will stay at my post, I will do what the captain says, you know, whatever, and and you make that agreement, then isn't there honor in honoring your agreement, Absolutely. even if you die as a result? 
But is there a limit or, or is there like no um, – yeah, is, is there a limit to that or is, it just should be honored completely without reserve? Well, okay, maybe reserve, but you just would not leave your post. Well, you know, that's – I think what's what I find interesting in, in this discussion is that you say well, – that we could say, well, 200 years ago, that's the way it was. But um, we don't believe that now. And so then this part of me wants to say, well, why don't we believe that now? You know, and, and then, of course, yeah, I— Yeah, you know what? I, I, I was wrong to say that. I, I, artic- you know, I'm sorry, what? I— I was just reading this article about, um, you know, COVID and um, other countries and the Delta variant and that there's this concern that, you know, here in the South and in Appalachian regions, there's a very small percentage of people who've been vaccinated. Right. And that as a result of this Delta variant coming in is that it's going to take a very heavy toll on um those communities in terms of death and those communities in terms of resources and um, that if you're vaccinated for, you know, a a previous variant, then, um, you know, the, 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 the mutation is, is slowed, you know? So by, not being vaccinated, it's sort of giving a host to these other variants. So, yes, it's not a ship with sails that's on fire, but it's sort of like, who is our commitment to? Is it the commitment for this boy, you know, this is commitment to the ship and his father, and this is your post and you stay here till I tell you to move? Mm-hmm. Or is, you know, your commitment to yourself, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do right. because I want to do it. And so um, I, 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 I wrestle with these arguments that I hear from people about, well, it's my body and I'm, I should be able to do what I want. Right. You know, but. But, you know, but people don't live in a vacuum. Isn't a bigger consideration? Yeah. No, right. I agree. Right. People don't live in a vacuum, you yeah. know. And, and you know what? I, I shouldn't have made a blanket statement about, uh, oh, yeah, in, in modern time, people don't do that. No, that's not true. People do it all the time. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, over the past year and a half, I mean, how many, you know, you know, nurses, um, you know, helpers in hospitals, doctors, I mean, walked in every day and literally put their lives on the line. And, and um, they and they knew that they knew that they were doing it. They wore you know garbage bags because there was no PPE. Right. I mean they they were bone tired and exhausted. They got sick themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of healthcare practitioners did make the ultimate sacrifice, and that they died from getting that that virus. Right. Yeah. And even I mean I was even reading about nurses who had retired who said. Um, my profession and my community needs me. Right. And yes. I'm going back yep. to work and then died from the virus. Right. Yeah. And you wonder, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you make that decision? You know, f- for me, because I, cause I've already had adult respiratory distress, distress distress syndrome, right. I knew that if I got the virus that 
you know, I kind of cheated death once. I don't know if I was going to get a second chance on that no, one. Yeah, it's but, right. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was in a position to go back and um, potentially do this. But there were nurses who, you know, were healthy and said, I'm retired, but, you know, the nurses need me. You know, they're short-staffed. Right. I need to go. Mm. So, so it's an interest it's an interesting mm-hmm. discussion though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's Yeah, and again, I mean, yeah, you you know, people can do what what they want, but then like I said, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. And and especially with modern transportation, I mean, things are you know, in pretty good shape in, in New York. Um uh, yeah, we're like, like I don't know, like seventy percent of people have at least gotten one vaccination, and out of that seventy, what is it? I, I don't quote me on this, but I think it's close to sixty have percent has had, you know, both shots, you know, both doses. Well, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I, I could be wrong with that figure. It, it could be lower, but it's it's. Not, I don't think it's significantly lower. But the big thing is, um, yeah. So now we're getting more. Um, you know, and we're getting more visitors. Um, you know, from different parts of the country well, are, are, are coming is in. Op- is opening. Well, it won't open. Right? It won't open big until September. Uh, but Springsteen, his show reopened. But I was going to say Bruce yeah, is there. Yeah, yeah. Right now, he's the only one. Um, yeah, they're, they're talking late July, early August. There might be two or three, you know, regular full blown productions open. But the bulk of it will not open until September. So yeah, right now it's just uh, it's just Springsteen, um, and you know, and and even then, you know, people, you you had to show that you received your vaccines, um, and people were outside protesting, like you know, this is unfair. I want to see the boss. It's like, well, you know, there get are limits. Vaccinated then. Yeah, you want to see him? That get vaccinated. So I was at Walmart yesterday getting groceries, and there was a quite an elder man who was the cashier mm-hmm. and he had his mask on, you know, below his nose, which, you know, makes me insane. And, but other people, other workers there did not have any masks on at all. So I said to him, I said, so what's the Walmart policy about masks? If you're vaccinated, do you have to wear a mask? He says, if you're vaccinated, show vaccination proof, you don't have to wear a mask. He says, now I'm vaccinated. He said, but you know, I, I wear a mask because it makes me feel better, you know, um, well, you know, because he's a cashier working with people. And um, he says, you know, like sometimes I don't wear it. And then I couldn't help myself. I said, or you don't wear it correctly. And he starts laughing. He says, you're right. I don't wear it correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's touching. Yeah. I mean, here in the subway, the, yeah, pu- public transportation is the last, you know, vestige of you know, a city ordinance, you need to wear your mask in public transportation or, you know, Uber, taxis. Yeah. But that's it. Um, If there are big arenas like Madison Square Garden, uh, Foo Fighters were the first big thing in the city. Um, Yeah, you were, I mean, they sold out and I don't know how many tens of thousands of seats are in there. Um, But yeah, at the door, you had to show that card. Or else you cannot get it. And then once in, if you don't want to wear a mask, you know, via condios. If you want to wear a mask, don't criticize someone. And it worked out fine. So. But everybody who was there was vaccinated is what you're saying. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. 
You could not you could not get oh, in. Okay. I, don't, I don't care if you bought a ticket without that vaccination card. Yep. You had to show the vac- wow. your vaccination card. Yeah. Yep. Now did now not to be suspicious or anything, but did they have to have their driver's license or something to show that it was their vaccination card? Or oh. you know what I'm saying? If I if I remember correctly, on the because you know everything is the tickets are different ticket companies. As far as I know, on the ticket is the name of the person is a person's name. So, and again, I'm I'm speculating here, but every ticket I've seen nowadays for Broadway for for anything, your name is on that ticket. So I'm assuming your name is on the ticket. It needs to match the name on the vaccination card. I'm sure people found a way around it, but for the most part, I believe oh, that's I, what I, happened. I'm thinking of like 10 ways around it already. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you have a PhD. <laughs> for 1995, you can send me a self-addressed stamped envelope and I will send you 10 ways to get around that. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? If 1995 is not an easy way to remember, what year is this? Oh, yeah, 2021. So for 2021, $20.21, please, <laughs> please self. And please make sure it's a self-addressed stamped envelope. Um, we will, yes, exactly. <laughs> so for that and other tips, please go to our website for a link <laughs> not only to this recipe, but also additional resources for this program. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and remember to rate and review this podcast. Listen, as a nonprofit organization, we are also thrilled to accept your donations. <laughs> no, seriously, we are, we are very happy to accept your donations. Please go to our webpage to donate and support our work, www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. So thanks for that, Charlie. Um, so in our second half, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Now we've done an entire podcast on this topic um, in the program notes for this uh, program. We'll give you the link so you can go back and listen to all the details about IPF. If you want it to kind of prepare and give you a sense of the the interview that we're going to be talking with um, Stephen today, but let me just briefly tell you. Um, so the, the disease is called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So idiopathic means that the cause is unknown. Now you might say, "Oh, well, it's got to be because of people smoking." No, people who've never smoked in their life can still get IPF. There's um, they're looking in to see if maybe there's a genetic uh, link to that, but that has not yet been um, shown. So it's idiopathic because the cause is unknown. Pulmonary means lung, you know, your ability to breathe. Mm-hmm. And fibrosis is scar tissue, which causes the lungs to become stiff and makes it hard to get oxygen into the blood. So um, when you listen to the other podcasts, there's these little, like, bubbles in our lungs called alveoli that um, collect the oxygen um, as we breathe in and and, um, help it, you know, transport it over to the blood. So if those um, 
alveoli are stiff and scarred, they're not going to be able to do the job that, you know, they're getting paid to do. And so the person's going to have a hard time breathing. So according to one study, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis affects about 200,000 people in the United States. You might say to yourself, um, 200,000, that's not really that many people. Well, it is if it's one of you, if it's you. If you're among that 3,000, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. That was my first thought, too. And, and, you know, you've been living your life, you know, you're a relatively young person, and all of a sudden you start having these symptoms where you can't breathe. So um, the symptoms of IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis are increase in shortness of breath. You know, you walk out to your mailbox to get your mail and you're like huffing and puffing. You're saying, geez, what's wrong? Why can't I breathe? And it only gets really worse from there. Um, Mm -hmm. It has a... um, really poor prognosis. The average life expectancy of people who have um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is about three to five years after diagnosis. Um, The average, uh, and, and that can depend on your age. It can depend on if you are a smoker and you're still smoking. It can depend on, you know, if you're carrying a lot of extra weight. It can depend on just a lot of variables. There, there are a few medicines, two medicines that can be prescribed to help with the symptoms, and they may work for you or, or they may not work for you. It depends. Um, the only really kind of good, and I put good in air quotes, um, way to manage the difficulty breathing is a lung transplant. And that has a lot of issues associated with it. Um, first and foremost is getting lungs. Um, you know, and being approved to uh, get the tr- transplant when and if the lungs become available. And then my experience in trans- taking care of transplant patients is that there's this mindset that, oh, I'm going to get this transplant and I'm going to be cured. Well, that just isn't true. You can get the transplant and your symptoms are so much better because yeah. in this case, like with IPF, your your lungs, those new lungs are working, working good. Mm-hmm. But anytime you get a transplant, you know, your body is always saying, I don't care what it is. I don't want it here. And so there's this possibility of rejection is what it's called. And nobody likes to be rejected, um, including the new pair of lungs that you just got. And so there's a lot of medicines that you have to take in order to prevent rejections. And a lot of follow-up going back with your, you know, to the transplant center, it is involved. And having had met um, Stephen, who we're going to be yeah. interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I met him on, on Facebook, and here's here's what I was on an IPF web, um, like support group on Facebook, you know, and he, there was a message from him to people saying, 
Um, it's been five years since my transplant, and if anybody has any questions, you can contact me. And if anybody needs somebody to go with them for the transplant, I'm available to do that. Wow! So let me tell you how important let me tell you how important that is uh-huh. because when yeah. I worked at at the VA oncology, we had people patients who did not have anybody available to them to go with them as the transplant caregiver. And every transplant, no matter what kind of transplant you're getting, you have to have a caregiver to go with you. And it might be for a month in another city. It might be for two months in another city, you know, because transplant centers are extremely expensive. They're not in every city in the country. And every transplant center sort of has their specialty. So you might have to go thousands of miles away to get the transplant that is that you want or you need rather. Um, So it's a big deal to, you know, because if, if you've got people who are working or you don't have family or where are you going to find somebody who's going to go off with you to... Wow, Dallas or wherever it is, whatever transplant center for a couple of months and be there. And here's this man who's saying, um, I've been through this. And if somebody, if that's what's standing in the, in the way of you having a transplant, then I'm available to do that. So I saw that and I thought, man, this guy is something else. So I contacted him and I said, would you be willing to do an interview and, and talk about, you know, this diagnosis? And um, he was great. And so we're going we're gonna to share that interview with you today in terms of how he got his diagnosis. But coming up in later weeks, what we'll do is do you know, further interviews with you know, how do you get approved? What is that transplant experience like? And it's not the same for everyone. All we're going to do is give you Stephen's experience yeah. with he, what he went through. Does that mean, is it going to be what you go through? No. Um, it might be better. It might be worse. I don't know until you do it. But it gives you a one-person sort of shot of Here's here's his story, and I'm so grateful to Stephen to share his story and to talk with us so that you guys, you know, our listeners can kind of get insight into that too. So, Charlie, for our third half, uh, would you mind introducing Stephen to our listeners? Not at all. This week, we welcome Stephen Lemke, who was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and had a double lung transplant six years ago. Stephen is 63 and spends a lot of his time helping other people learn and cope with IPF. He is very open in talking about IPF and shares his philosophy about living with chronic illness. We hope you learn something new from our interview with Stephen. Today we're going to be talking about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And I know that that sounds like a lot, like a big mouthful. And you're probably saying, what the heck is that? And I'll tell you, if you haven't been affected by it or you don't know somebody who's been affected by it, it might not be something that you've ever heard of before. 
So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is a type of chronic scarring lung disease. Um, it's a progressive disease, meaning that it's kind of just going to get worse. Um, it's irreversible. And it's just a decline in the lung function. Um, symptoms are, usually start pretty gradually, can start with shortness of breath, um, dry coughs, uh, feeling tired. Um, complications can be pulmonary hypertension, heart failure, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism. So it's all about the lungs. And are these little sacs in our lungs called alveoli. And they kind of, what happens with this disease is they start to stiffen and become fibrotic. And there's not any real known cause. Um, being a man can make it worse, and you have no control over that. Um, smoking can make it worse. Environmental things can make it worse. Um, but people can be as young as, you know, in their 40s, be diagnosed with this, um, never have had a smoking history, be very functional, very active in their lives, and suddenly they'll start with some shortness of breath, some coughing, this cough won't go away, and eventually it, you know, kind of with a lot of uh, going to the doctor can figure out um, what's going on. So I thought it would be helpful to talk with somebody who's had this disease. And so our guest today is Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Hello there. Um, you guys might you? be hearing. I'm good, good. I'm so grateful that you've decided to come and talk with us. Um, our listeners might hear might hear some growling in the background, and that's um, Cyrus, Stephen's uh, support dog, and um, he's quite chatty when he decides he wants to be involved. So um, if we need to have uh, Cyrus give us a story, we'll also ask for something from him. So, Stephen, <laughs> how old were you? How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 62 years old. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about how that diagnosis came about? What was going on? Well, I, um, I was a, a former smoker, but I had quit smoking for nine years, and I was feeling pretty good. And I also had worked in the construction industry, and um, I was around a lot of uh, dangerous fumes and uh, dust and dirt and uh, even asbestos throughout my uh, 30 years of working. And um, so when, I, when it started to get hard to walk upstairs, I just blamed it all on that. Mm. And um, so um, that was the first time that I noticed was trying to go upstairs was becoming more and more difficult. And it got to the and point that I could it, was that at age... Was that at age 62, Stephen, or was yeah, that before that? That was 60, yes. I think it was 62, yes. Okay. And uh, so um, I, I thought I'd better start exercising because I was mm -hmm. getting short of breath. And so I went to uh, my uh, physician, and he uh, gave me an inhaler to use and uh, just kind of wrote it off as former smoker, just like I was thinking. So I had no reason to think differently. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it got, began to get worse and worse where I could only go up a couple stairs. And uh, I was coughing constantly. I mean, just nonstop coughing, uh, producing phlegm. And um, so I went to get a second opinion. And um, this, uh, the second doctor more or less told me the same thing. He said, come on back in, in five or six months and, and we'll do a CAT scan. And uh, at that time, I, uh, I talked to my wife about it, and I said, I, I think there's more to this than they're finding. And she said, yes, absolutely, get another, get an, a third opinion. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to get my uh, third opinion, and, um, but I actually went to a respiratory therapist is the one who determined what was something seriously wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, she was going to help me decide what I could do for exercise and not hurt myself. And during the talk with her, she says to me, um, how long have your fingernails been clubbed and blue? Mm-hmm. And I, I, of course, I said I did not realize that. It comes on to a point where, you know, you don't realize what's going on. And he, she said, your lips are blue, too. And she uh, then put an anoxymeter on my finger and said, I want you to walk down the hallway here with me a little ways. And we went to about 30 feet, and my oxygen level was 69. So Good Lord. She said, she said, you need to sit down right now. You, I'm going to get you a chair. Stop. Um, so let me um, let me gonna... stop you right there. Let me stop you right there, Stephen. So because we have listeners okay. saying sixty nine, why is that such a big deal? Well, your pulse oximeter, your your pulse, your oxygenation within your blood should be about ninety nine or hundred because you're breathing, your your lungs are taking in that oxygen, and that oxygen goes into your um, blood, and that's what it should be. And so um, sometimes, like with exertion, you know, it, it might go down a little bit because you're puffing so hard. But 69 is yes. pretty dangerous. And that was so only that, after walking about 50 feet. That's the sidebar for our listeners. Okay, so did she, was she freaking out? Well, um, kind of, but she, um, <laughs> she did it very wisely. In fact, I still know her. I still co- I'll communicate with her after five years. And so now I know, I understand that, yes, she was freaking out. But uh, so she got me a chair and sat me down, and she said, you got something seriously wrong with you. I cannot tell you what it is. You need to see a specialist now. And that's when I told her I've already seen two doctors. And she said, no, I'm going to get you someone that really knows what they're doing. So... Uh, she got me to a pulmonologist who um, he uh, talked to me and listened to my lungs and told me to go get a CAT scan immediately and bring the results back up to his office immediately. So this was quite unlike what any other doctors had told me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I looked at the CAT scan with him, and he said, uh, see all these holes in your lungs here? On the, on the film and I said yes and he said they're not supposed to be there you have mm. holes in your lungs and he said I want to put you on oxygen immediately so uh, 
I was immediately put on home oxygen and um, continued my respiratory therapy. But that was when it really sunk in that it was more, it was more than just um, being older and being a, a former smoker and all that, that there was something else that was really wrong. And so what happened next? Well, um, I was set up at the home oxygen at, I think it was five liters a minute, uh, which is, I guess, higher than, and, than some. But uh, within um, a couple weeks, I was um, using 10 if I was walking around. I was okay with five so it was five really liters. progressing pretty quickly with you. It was, it was. But at my original, um, after I went back to see the good pulmonologist um, for the second time, he to- this is what he told me. He says, you um, have uh, pulmonary fibrosis, and uh, we're going to attribute it to, at this point, with your uh, work history, because um, it's not caused by smoking, he said, your work history of working with all these dangerous fumes, chemicals, uh, dirt and dust and asbestos all the time without a mask on uh, is most likely what the contributing factor is. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, but at this point, you should be have a, a, as close to normal life as you possibly can on oxygen and uh, maybe as time goes by, you know, a few years down the line or whatever, you've got to bump it up a little bit so you're on six or seven instead of five. And, uh, of course, all this is sinking into me. It's like, okay, this is it. I mean, this is forever. I'm going to be on oxygen 24-7 for the rest of my life, and it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. He said, and I, and I need you to know that there is no cure. And uh, he says the only alternative for uh, patients who are extremely bad is a lung transplant. But he said, I don't want you to even think about a lung transplant because the odds are not all that good. He said, you have like a 50-50 chance to live five years. And he said, I believe that you can go on for 15 or 20 years just using the oxygen. So we're not even going to think about a transplant. He says, you just keep going on with your uh, respiratory therapy and living your life, and uh, I think you're going to, you know, stabilize right where you're at. Stephen, can I ask you, is that the typical thing that people who are diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis hear, is that they've got 20 years ahead of them? Um, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know people who have had, uh, pulmonary fibrosis for, for many years and they're Mm -hmm. still functioning. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they're not just on medication, exercise, oxygen. Um, and so this was in this, he told me this in October of 2014, and I continued on with my um, my respiratory therapy, and every time 
I went there, it seemed like I had to turn the oxygen up a little bit more, even if I was walking on a treadmill for a mile an hour or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, unbeknownst to me, the the woman who, I call her the woman who saves my life, she was the one who diagnosed me with the 69% uh, oxygen level, as it had been communicating with the uh, pulmonologist, um, and I did not know any of this because she noticed me getting worse. And mm-hmm. uh, it got to the point where I was using up uh, one of those uh, carry-along tanks of oxygen um, that you see people with in the, in the stores. And uh, they, um, I could uh, go through one of those tanks in about 20 minutes on a treadmill. Oh and they should, last, they should last for at least five or six hours. Sometimes, you know, it's, sometimes they, they'll last someone more than a day. Mm-hmm. And so then we go to um, this Thanksgiving time was only, you know, six, seven weeks after I had been diagnosed. And I got some kind of a respiratory infection, just like it was full. It was cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. And um, even with my oxygen on 10 at that time, which is as high as it went, I really had come to the conclusion that I was dying. Mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I could not breathe. I could not say a full sentence without stopping, gasping for air, coughing, hacking, um, it's just like, well, you know, this is coming on so fast. I, I don't know how, I can't go on like this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the doctor had given me different kinds of antibiotics, different kinds of steroids, trying to kick this cold out. And it ended up lasting for about five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was to the point where I couldn't go, I couldn't walk, uh, 30, 40 feet, um, even with oxygen on, without having to sit down and rest. And this all happened in about two months. And so um, here they had been conspiring behind my back (laughs) as um, (laughs) I was a prime candidate for a transplant. And so when I went to see my doctor in probably January after the cold was gone and everything, and uh, it had started coming back again. It was only gone for about two weeks and started coming back again. And uh, so I went to my regular doctor visit, and uh, my pulmonologist told me, he said, you know, I told you just a few months ago that uh, I would not recommend a lung transplant for you. But he said, you have progressed so rapidly that um, you that's your going to be your only alternative. He says, I cannot do anything more for you. There's no medication. There is no uh, nothing else that we can do for you. Um, a transplant is your only choice. And, of course, that uh, that takes a while to sink in. Really? And, you're so young uh, yeah. and this is what you're facing? Yes. I mean, you know, it's like um, what's strike three, you know? Um, how did you How did you 
Can you remember how you felt when you heard that news? Like, what were the things going through your head? Well, it was like I was sitting in a tunnel, and everything I heard and felt was off in the distance. And I was just like, oh, my, what, you know, what's going on here, you know? Here, my idea was I can live like this for 15 or 20 years. Now you're telling me I can't. Uh, I might not even make it months. You know, that's a big difference. And my head was just spinning. And uh, for some reason, something inside of me just said to accept everything that you're told. Not only accept it, but embrace it. Go with it. Whatever they want you to do, do. And so I kind of just uh, snapped out of it and came back and listened to what he was saying. And he said, uh, there's nobody here in this town that can help you. Um, he said, I'm going to give you, you can either go to the University of Minnesota or you can go to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I will write you a recommendation for either one you want to go to. So I chose the Mayo Clinic. This was in January. Well, then it takes a while before you even hear back from them to see if you're even accepted. And and so it was about February or March before they had uh, the Mayo Clinic had set up um, a schedule for me to come down and just to do the testing to see if mm -hmm. you uh, make the transplant list. And... Um, that was nine days of testing solid from uh, seven in the morning till five at night for nine days for the testing. Wow. And um, so I asked him, I said, uh, can I wait six weeks? Because I had two young children yet then uh, that were still in How old were your school. kids? My, my youngest kids they? at that time were 13 and 15. And they oh were goodness. still in, still were in middle school and had activities and and after school things and friends uh, you know they had here we didn't want to leave them home alone and so I said if I could just wait six weeks then they'll be out of school and then we can all go down there for the nine days and he looked at me and he said you don't have six weeks and that's when my heart it's like I don't have six weeks and he said this testing is rough it is not just you know going to get in a blood draw and having interviews he said there is a lot of people who I recommend that go down for testing that get halfway through it and quit they say they can't take it anymore they just physically can't take it anymore so they choose to die rather than go through with the testing. And so I'm learning all of this. None of this has ever been explained to me before. But, of course, I'm going along with anything. I'm agreeing. I'm going to do the testing, of course. And uh, it just so happened that my, uh, my older daughter uh, was off of work, and so she was going to come and stay at our house and watch the younger kids well, my wife and I went to uh, Rochester to the Mayo Clinic for the nine days of testing. 
And now, uh, tell me, how did your how did your wife take this news? Um, well, of course she was shocked because she kept chiding me. You know, you got to go ride bike. You got to go um, walking. You got to do something. You're just out of shape. And then to find out that I'm not just out of shape, well, of course, was a shock. Yeah, because we hate being wrong. Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I understand that. But um, in the in the meantime, I mean, it was like from February until the end of April that um, there was still wait time, you know, before the the testing would start down there. And mm-hmm. I had uh, I had went and got a part time job delivering pizza. And I wore an oxygen tank on my back while I was working. And I had two extra ones with me. Uh, I only worked three, four hours at a time. And um, so that I always have oxygen with me. And I had it hooked up in the back of my car. I had taken out the back seat and put in a 75-gallon liquid oxygen tank in the back of my car so that while I was in the car, I never had to worry about running out of oxygen. And then I would would use the smaller tanks that I could carry on my back when I got out, you know, to go deliver the pizzas. And um, my doctor found out about this about the 1st of April. I was telling him, hey, you know what happened at work last night? And he starts laughing and he looks at me and he says, well, you're not kidding. This isn't a joke. I said, well, no. And he said, you're still working? And I said, yes, I work like four days a week. And he said, well, you don't anymore. And he uh, took out his stationery and wrote me a letter <laughs> that says, I am not to work anymore. Yeah. And that was around the beginning, the beginning of April, and then at the towards the, uh, I think it was like April 29th or something like that was our first uh, um, testing appointments at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, yes, it was brutal, but there was always this something inside of me that just said that everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right. All you have to do is just go along with the program and just do what they say. Don't fight anything. Uh, all these doctors know exactly what they're doing and your best chance is just to listen to them and go with it. And now, that was you, the attitude that, go ahead. Did you, did you have, um, was this voice in your head to accept and embrace what you're told? Is that something that you've had your whole life or did it just kind of come to you with this diagnosis? It's something I basically had my whole life. I mean, the the core was there, yes. Um, I believe one of the things that also helped me through uh, acquiring this attitude stronger and understanding the attitude more was I started meditating about, oh, two years before my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I, I believe that helped with uh, 
uh, uh, not embracing, but it helped me with strengthening this attitude that I already had to begin with. And, and do, you, um, do you know the origin of that attitude? I mean, is it something your parents taught you? Because I'm sure listeners who are, who are going through the kind of um, disease process that you had are, are saying to themselves, well, how do I get to the point where I can just accept and embrace and go through this process or uh, deal with the disease? That is a quest I'm still on. But I, I believe, I mean, this is what I believe, that um, this is not the first time in my life that I was in a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's like I've had a, um, an attitude ever since birth, uh, as far as I know, that um, no matter what, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Uh, I almost died when I was nine months old. And uh, I pulled through that. Um, and I must have been given a gift at that time. I don't know. Um, I don't, it isn't like everybody in my family is like that. I mean, I guess my mother is or was. But, um, yeah, it's just... Um, it's, I have this this feeling that no matter what I do, everything's going to be all right. I have to listen to my inner voice. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't listen to social media. I can't listen to other people's opinions. I mean, I do, but I always take them with a grain of salt, of course, because mm-hmm. I know that something has been shown to me somewhere along the line that as long as I do what I'm supposed to be doing, everything's going to be all right. Well, that's and, a, an uh, incredible attitude that must, that must be so empowering for you. It is. Um, it has played a, a huge part in my life, especially these last uh, six or seven years with being sick, going through all of, of the pre-transplant um, I was in the hospital also for 80 days, you know, and to be in there for that long is is a quite a feat in itself. But um, I I don't know if I just always search out the positiveness, but it's mm-hmm. more to it than that. It's more like I know something. I know I'm going to be okay. No matter what happens, I'm going to be all right. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's unexplainable. I, um, of course, um, as, as, things, as, as this whole thing progresses, you know, I had some uh, near-death experiences during my whole transplant process also that just reassured me that what I'm doing is right. It's the right thing to do that mm-hmm. everything's going to be okay. Um, and also, I mean, my doctors and, and nurses and everybody uh, during the whole transition, they, um, they were all so, I mean, acting like, 
oh, this is, yeah, we know how to do this. Don't worry about this. We'll take care of this. You're going to be fine. And uh, it was a very uh, uh, believable um, what they were saying to me and the way they were treating me. Everything was believable. But like, well, this is cool. This is like another little part of life that I've never experienced before. And I'm kind of looking forward to experiencing this now. Mm-hmm. And, so we um, wanted... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I, I broke your train of thought. I'm so sorry. Oh, we, what, okay. we had ta- what, what we had talked about was talking about the transplant itself in a separate yes. show. So we're gonna yes. we're gonna park that so everybody can come back and hear um, the the transplant story and okay. those those 80 days and all that happened. Right. But given you know like back at that time before you had the transplant or before you knew if you could get the transplant or if there would be lungs or, you know, there's a lot of variables in getting a transplant. Did you make any changes in your life, do anything differently, or did you just say everything's going to be okay and keep doing what you were doing? Well, uh, of course, I changed my occupation. I was working in flooring, and I went to delivering pizza. Um, I came to the realization that just, you know, hopping on a bicycle and trying to uh, make exercise take this away or make it better wasn't working. In -hmm. fact, it, it, uh, it made me work harder and um, I remember one day I had the oxygen on my back and I was riding my bicycle and I had my dog pulling me on the on the bicycle and of course for the first five or six blocks he takes off running and pulls me and I just sit there and well then after five or six blocks he gets worn out and then I have to start pedaling and I couldn't make it home Oh even God. wearing oxygen. And so, well, I just had to get off the bike and walk it and walk really, really slow and take breaks. Uh, it took me a good 20, 30 minutes to walk back uh, the five or six blocks that I was away from home. And uh, so... Yes, that uh, was a big change of not even being able to ride a bicycle, you know, when I was used to doing that uh, for miles and miles, you know. We'd go out mm-hmm. as a family and on a Saturday or something and just be gone for hours just riding bikes. And now all of a sudden I can't go uh, six blocks. And um, so, yes, there was, um, I mean, and I was always very strong. I always worked uh, in a, in some kind of an industry where I had to use my my mind and my muscles, my brawn. And I was always mm-hmm. a very strong guy. And uh, I noticed myself just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And and um, so I had to compensate for that um, mentally, also. I mean, you know, that's a big, that was a big blow to me. That was something I took pride in that, 
here I am, you know, I'm 60 years old, and I can still outwork a 20-year-old, you know. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not true anymore. Just almost overnight. How did you, how did you cope with that? Because that, be, that can be really hard when you're used to one body and self-image and kind of it gets cut down with a disease like that. Well, the only way that I could cope with that is to um, look inside and say, hey, this is a new life. This is a new beginning. Yes, I was strong before, but I'm not strong now. So things are different. Things are going to be different. I have to live differently. I have to think differently. Um I have to look into things that uh, I could do to occupy my time rather than uh, going out and maybe, you know, um, building a fence or something like that in the backyard, uh, which I could do before. Now I would have to do something that was, um, uh, that I was capable of doing. And I found a group of friends who, um, highly intelligent, uh, um, uh, educated uh, people who would go for coffee every day at a coffee shop. And I was like uh, a mouse in the corner because I, you know, I, I wasn't uh, able to communicate with these, with these uh, individuals. And I was going to coffee with them every day. And before you know it, I realized that I was a lot smarter than I thought I was, and I was contributing, and <laughs> and um, I was uh, becoming a part of it and looking forward to those conversations every day with these people that I didn't think I could actually communicate with. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that led me to a Bible study group that um, I still belong to, and uh, that also... Uh, turned into, at at the church where I was going to the Bible study group, they also have uh, uh, a Buddhist uh, group where they, you can um, uh, meditate and uh, take lessons from Buddhist monks. And so mm-hmm. I found, you know, so many different interests that really, I mean, really enticed me and were really interested in me, I mean, to me, to um, to just change because I had no alternative. I could not mm-hmm. go back to where who I was. I had to become somebody else. And uh, so, I mean, it, to me, it was like an easy transition. It was like I met these people, and this uh, situation would lead into another situation like, at, uh, like it was a plan that I didn't know anything about, but I just... I had to jump in and and be part of the plan because this Mm -hmm. was my new life. It really wasn't, uh, it wasn't a difficult change for me. I I adjusted uh, very easily and um, I have to say that, you know, I, I communicate with other people who are in the same situation I was, um, who need transplants. Um, or should be going and at least going to the doctor that mm-hmm. fight everything. They they cannot understand that 
this is a disease that will kill you. They cannot understand, or they don't want to understand, that this is something that will, you know, you have to go with the flow, you have to change. They're unwilling to change. They would rather suffer than change. Mm. And I think, to me, one of the, you know, the one of the biggest things that allowed me to go along um, with all of this whole program and to, and to flourish in it is that something just inside of me said, Hey, you got, you know, you need to change. Nothing's the same. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The way you think, the way you talk, the people you hang out with, nothing in your life is the same. You just have to accept it. Do you, and you have see, to look at it. Do you see ITF as, as a gift in any way in terms of getting you to this new place? Or would you rather skip that whole thing and just stay where you were? Well, I think I, I think I know a secret, but I don't know what it is, if that makes sense. It's like I know that you have to listen to your inner voice and you have to do what you are capable of or what you are gifted with. Everybody, I believe everybody has a gift. You have to follow that gift. And if you do, you have no idea what's going to happen, but you have to treat it like it's uh, a new day, like it's a new thing, like, oh, God, this is interesting. You know, I'm going yeah, to go with this. I didn't know that before. You know, my whole life has to be that way. If I get into a situation where I try to control my own destiny, then I start feeling sorry for myself. And so uh, I guess I, I, maybe I was lucky enough to find out at a young age that um, what you're looking for is not what is for you. Rather, whatever happens to you, if you go with it, that is what you're supposed to be doing. Like if I set out a goal to say, okay, I'm going to get my strength back and I'm going to be able to breathe, that's not going to happen. If I say, okay, I want to become a uh, ballet dancer, well, that's not going to happen. I I realize that I have to go with... Do you make goals for yourself? Not huge goals, not goals like um, what's going to happen next week or next year. Um, now, this, um, my life right now has been consisting of helping people who are less fortunate, and that's all that I'm concerned about. That's all that makes me feel good, um, and that can be found anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time when I... Uh, do come across a situation where I find somebody who needs 
maybe just a uh, a friend or someone to talk to or um, a lift is just something that happens. It's not something I set out a plan to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a job one year after transplant. Um, I shouldn't have been working. They told me to take two years off. But um, I took a job as a uh, bus driver for people with special needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had never, never, ever dreamt of anything like this. I mean, this wasn't something I was looking for. or And it was certainly not something that I thought was going to last very long. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely fell in love with it. <laughs> I, I can bet that those, um, the kids or the, the adults that you're driving are in love with you. Is that true? That is true. That is. That <laughs> we, 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 I, you know, we, yes, I guess I never looked at it that way before. Thank you. Yes. I loved, I know I loved them. And I know that a lot of them loved me too. Yes, it was. We had a great relationship. And it was just something that just happened because I just stopped in this place one day because they had a, you know, they were looking for people and, and I needed something to do. It was not a goal. It wasn't something, went to, you know, I, I looked to do or sought out. It was just there for me, and I took it. And uh, that's pretty much how I operate, you know. I, I go to, the, I go to uh, pulmonary uh, uh, respiratory uh, places, you know, where, the, where people that are awaiting uh, transplants or are trying to strengthen up, and I go and... and and talk to them, and, and I, uh, I go to uh, hospitals and I go to the pulmonary uh, sections and ask if there's anybody that needs to, you know, needs to talk for a while or anything. And and most of the time when I do that, I plan on, you know, going in there saying hi, da da da, you know, and end up being in there for two, three, four hours. Oh it's just, it's just. That's what I like to do. I feel that's what I'm supposed to do. So mm-hmm. I guess that's as far as the planning goes as I will, you know, go to a place like that, you know, um, a respiratory therapist facility or a, or a hospital. And uh, I just seek out people who might need a, a companion for a while. And so you open yourself up to the universe and take in what's offered is what I hear you saying. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I take, I actually take a little pride in, uh, you know, when I go to the clinic, like I'm like coming up here, I'm going to be going for five days uh, for my yearly. And uh, mm-hmm. I will see somebody across the room in a hospital and go sit down and talk to them and, and end up being friends with them. I mean, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you just have to take it for what it is. Well, you have such an incredible story, Stephen. And for our listeners, uh, we're going to talk with Stephen again and learn about the whole transplant thing because that's that's a whole story and drama in, of its own. So for 
for us today, Stephen. I want to thank you so much for just talking with me about this disease and what you went through, and I know it'll help other people who are, are listening who say, how do I get through this? You know, that, that you will be a sort of a role model or a, a beacon in terms of how to get through this. So thank you so much. Well, it's it's been my pleasure, and I will talk to you anytime. Uh, if I might add just one thing about mm-hmm. the transplant is that I never asked anybody, "Is this going to hurt? How you know how long is it going to hurt?" Uh, the transplant itself. But one mm-hmm. day, um, when I was getting put into the hospital uh, prior. To um, transplant because they, I couldn't get enough oxygen at home, so they put me in Optiflow in the hospital uh, for 30 days before they found a donor. But when I went into the hospital, mm-hmm. one of my doctors had told me. He said, "You know," he said, "As many, many of these as that I've done, as many of you people like you that I have seen, I still don't know what it's like because I've never actually lived it." He said, you're the only one that's not, but you know what it's actually like. But he said, to be honest with you, um, somebody told me it was like getting hit by a bus. And that was the only thing that was in my mind. And you know what? Didn't hurt at all. Really? So, yes. If anybody is wondering, oh, I don't want to go through this because it's so painful and it hurts, no, I did not. I didn't suffer wow. any pain. They know how to manage your medication so well and take care of you so well that it was it was really a breeze. It was not painful. Well, that's good to know. And we're going to really get into that when, when the next time that we talk. So, Stephen, thank okay. you again. Thank you. And with that, please stay tuned for future episodes of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete reminding you that the idea is to die young as late as possible. (laughs) And I'm Marian Matzo, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.